want to invite you to have a seat. As you do, I want you to know that you're welcome here. We're so glad to see each and every one of you, uh, except for uh, Gray Station and Blue Station. No, we're glad that you're here, but we're not going to let you stay too much longer. If you're in the Gray Station or the Blue Station, you can make your way forward now. So the Gray Station will be meeting over here, the Blue Station over here. And so Gray Station is, uh, I'm sorry, uh, I got that backwards, didn't I? So Blue Station is three to five years old. You're going to be over here. You're going to be looking at this idea from the Jesus Storybook Bible, God makes a way. Aren't you glad, Mom and Dad, that God makes a way? Oh, my goodness, you're tired this morning, aren't you? I better be brief or go extra long just to see what we can get out. Over here, we're going to have Grace Station. They're going to be learning, answering this question, how can we glorify God? How can we glorify God? Look how confused I've got them. How can we glorify God? Here's the answer. We'll wait till they leave. Maybe you would need to know this because you'll be teaching here in just a few moments. Stick around, I'll tell you. How can we glorify God? We can glorify God by loving Him and obeying His commands and law. Now, it doesn't say how can we earn our salvation, but how can we glorify God by loving Him and obeying His commands and law. Last week, we looked at Mark chapter 15 verses 16 through 20, and the verses following, but we didn't spend a whole lot of time in those verses. Matthew 15, verses 16 through 20. I want to look at those quickly, make a few comments, and then we're going to jump into actually this morning's text, which is found on page um, uh, 1013 in the Black Bible in front of you, and then as well it'll be located on the screen. But Mark chapter 15, we'll read verses 16 through 20 now. That'll really pave the way for us to jump back into our text for this morning, which is Mark 15, 21 to 41. This is what God's Word says, verses 16 through 20. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him and hail him, King of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Last week, we looked at this idea that Jesus was considered the king of the Jews. Jesus, to this day, is considered the king of the Jews. We prayed last week, we'll continue to pray, hopefully until the king returns, that he would be treated on earth as he is in heaven. But in contrast as to how the, the, the heavens would declare he should be treated, we see in these verses that he was given a kingly cloak, and yet that kingly cloak stuck to the blood that was pouring from his back and sides. We see in these verses, in preparation for the king to be exalted before the people, that he is given indeed a crown, but that crown is a crown of thorns. It's mashed into his forehead and crown. We see that they begin to salute this king, the king of the Jews. They don't do it in an honoring way but rather in jest. And they spit upon him, they bow before him, and give him a faux reverence and faux worship. 
He's been condemned to die. He's laid his life down, and now he is being led out to be crucified. This is Friday morning. Just a few days on Friday, we'll celebrate Good Friday. Today we're looking at the text, the the occurrence of Good Friday, but we'll not celebrate that until this Friday. This is the week of the Passion, though. Remember, just a few days ago, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. He's been called the King of the Jews. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Just the course of a few days, the crowd turns. He's arrested. He stands trial of sorts. He's condemned to die. He's beaten and treated very irreverently. And now we'll see him on the cross, dying this morning. This is our king. This is King Jesus. He was despised, though he'll not be despised much longer. He was rejected. He'll not be rejected much longer. This morning, though, we'll look by turning our attention to the father's relationship with the son as he hangs on the cross, and we'll see this word come to Jesus' mind and lips, forsaken, forsaken by the father. Think about this idea. In order for us, his church, to be accepted by the Father, Jesus would have to be forsaken. So though it may be a painful reality for us to consider and in some sense relive, that's our task this morning. So Jesus, in verse 20, being led out to be crucified. Let's look at Mark chapter 15, verses 21 to 41 now. It says in verse 21, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. He was the father of Alexander and Rufus. He was called to carry Jesus' cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. 
And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. There were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is God's word. Would you ask him to bless it? Father, we come to you again briefly just asking that you would bless the reading of your word. Father, we have not gathered here for funny stories, or even for uplifting quips. Father, we've gathered here because your words are life. We need the Spirit to apply these words to our lives. As we prayed a moment ago, may we see your holiness and your love. May we see the beauty of Christ. May we see our own sinfulness. And may we run further in to this gospel truth. That Jesus was forsaken so that we can be redeemed. We ask these things in his name. Amen. This is the main idea this morning that I want to offer to you that I really think comes jumping off the pages of Scripture. That Jesus was forsaken so his church could be redeemed. You say, I know this. I've heard it a thousand times. And yet this is where we find ourselves this morning because we need to know it again and more fully that Jesus the King was forsaken so that his church could be accepted. Really this morning, before we jump into uh, verse 21, I want us to look at verses 40 and 41. Let's just get this out of the way quickly. It says, there were also women looking on from a distance. It's interesting that Mark just throws that out there real quick. He's like, oh, by the way, there were some women up on the hill. I want you guys to know about that. I mean, why does, why does, he, show that with, why does he share that with us? We know a little bit about these women from the other gospel accounts and a little bit here by their names. Specifically, we, we know a little bit about Mary Magdalene. And I won't share all the information about her. She would appreciate it if I didn't. Not that I know it all. She had been released, we know, from severe demonic possession. Not oppression, possession. She'd been delivered by Jesus. We know according to Matthew chapter 27, verse 56, at Salome, she was likely the wife of Zebedee, which was the mother of James and John. And there were others that were, other women that were gathered there, but it's interesting that Mark takes careful attention to let the church in Rome that's reading his letter and us now know that women were there. In contrast, most of the men were gone. Would have seemed more fitting. In my mind, one of the disciples would actually have been there with Jesus hold, carrying up his cross. Why was Peter not there to carry the cross? Why was this man that we have never met before, we don't know anything about, why was he the one carrying the cross? We don't know. He's gone. Some random stranger carries the cross for Jesus. But we also know that Mark wants the church there in Rome to know that women were important in this story. Did you know, church, that much, much work in the early church rested and was completed upon, born on the shoulders of women who loved Jesus? As a matter of fact, the, the confirmation that Jesus 
died, was buried, and raised again on the third day was confirmed first and foremost by who? Women. And so they have an important, significant role to play in the life of the church. And their role is not done. These eyewitnesses testifying of the true elements of the gospel are incredibly important. And we know by, by God's providence that what took place there this week could not have been substantiated in the same way that it had been apart from them. It's interesting, though, even in that day, in rabbinic courts, women were not only not able to be judges, but they weren't even able to be witnesses. Even to this day in rabbinic court in Israel, they're not permitted to be judges or witnesses. But Mark is letting us know, hey, women have a role to play. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because this isn't the main point of the text. But I think it's interesting that we know, I think it's important that we know that God has always used women in the church to bring him glory and to bring strength to the church. Annie Armstrong is one person that we can look at. Hey, we look, we look all the way back in those days where these ladies were boldly going where no man was willing to go, to stand, although far off, close enough to see, which couldn't be said for most of the men that loved and followed Jesus. That wasn't just the way that God was, God wasn't just using women in those days. He's even using them today. And I love the idea that we call the Easter offering for the North American Mission Board Annie Armstrong. As you consider the work that this woman has, the role that she's played in the life of the church and missions here, as a matter of fact, so much of what we enjoy today as a church still vibrantly existing and proclaiming Jesus' gospel is as a result of what God has done through this woman. And again, this isn't the main point of the text, but I want you to know this. This is what the scriptures clearly teach, that men and women are equal in value but different in roles. Men and women are equal in value and different in roles. And so you might be asking this morning, why does Mark leave this information about the women being here? Well, one, because it's true. One, it's just true. But two, I, I think by, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wants us to know that women do have a place in the church, not just in first century Jerusalem, not just first century Christianity but in the 21st century as well. And so kudos to you women. The Lord is using you mightily. We could talk, we could spend a lot of time, but today's not Mother's Day and so we won't do that. We'll move on. So let's jump from verse 40 and 41 all the way back to the beginning of our text this morning, which is verse 21. It says there in verse 21, and they compelled, as they're walking Jesus to the cross where he'll be crucified, they compel a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they compel him to do what? To carry Jesus' cross. It's really interesting. In the 40s, in the 1940s, a group of archaeologists discovered a first century burial cave there on the uh, southwestern side in the Kidron Valley there, uh, right, right southwest side of the, the Temple Mount. They, they found a burial cave with something inscribed on that cave. Do you know what it was? It's really interesting. It said, Alexander, son of Rufus. It's really, or I'm sorry, son of Simon. Alexander, son of Simon. 
There could be a lot of people with that kind of combination, Alexander, son of Simon, but it's really, really interesting that it's there. And it's also dated to the first century before the destruction of the temple, which is right in this time period. So very well, perhaps this is Alexander's grave that we found in the 40s. At any rate, that's not the only time that we we see these guys mentioned. We also see in Romans chapter 16 that Paul instructs the church to greet Rufus, which by the way, that's such a cool name, right? Can we all agree that Rufus is a really, really cool name? And I'd love to see somebody named Rufus, not a dog, but a, a kid. So just consider it. It's a cool name. But Paul he encouraged the church in Rome, by the way. There's a connection between Mark and Romans, right? Both of the same audience initially. But Paul, he instructs them, hey, I want you to greet Rufus. Also greet his mom. She's been so kind to me. She's really, really, really cared for me. It's likely that these folks, that, that Simon of Cyrene, who's compelled to carry Jesus' cross, and his two sons that are standing there watching their father get grabbed and thrown down next to Jesus, and his cross be transferred onto Simon's back, it's likely that these guys, not only mentioned in Romans, you know, where and akin to what Jesus is enduring here in this exact hour right in front of them, and that they too gave their lives to Jesus, to King Jesus, and bowed the knee to him, not in some mocking way, but in a true and honoring way. Who knows, though? It's interesting. Simon of Cyrene. According to Roman law, those who would be crucified were expected to carry their own horizontal cross brace. It actually says this, he who is nailed to the cross first carries it out. It's a law. It's precedent. It's interesting here that Jesus only makes it so far. This doesn't speak to his strength as a person. It speaks more to his beating that he endured. We looked briefly at it this morning and and even more briefly at it last week, but Jesus was scourged beyond the point of recognition. Incredible loss of blood about to faint, perhaps fainting even here. This is wounds, attempt, body attempts to, to heal from its wounds. Unable to carry the cross, Simon begins to do so. And as they carry the cross uh, along the, the Via Dolorosa, which was the way of suffering, the way of pain, Simon is there with Jesus. The route that they would use to take somebody that had been condemned to die to the place that they would die was through the streets. You might think, well, hey, Jerusalem is packed full today. Why would we go down through the main streets? Why wouldn't we try to take some kind of a secret passageway out of the city and get around that way we could beat all traffic? Why wouldn't the centurions do that? Why wouldn't the the Roman soldiers take him that route? Well, one of the biggest reasons that Rome would execute its enemies was so that others would be warned. And so they'd lose the benefit, the intimidation, if they were to take another way. And so Jesus, impeded by intense traffic, is making his way to where he'll be crucified. Unable to carry the beam himself, helped by Simon of Cyrene. But they do, in fact, make it to the place called Golgotha. We could spend a lot of time today debating as to actually where Golgotha is. We're not going to do that this morning. The truth is we do know that Jesus was crucified, and he was crucified somewhere right outside 
of the city of Jerusalem. This is the place where he'll die. The place where he'll give up his life, his spirit. Where he'll call out to the Father who has forsaken him. He gets there. What do they do? They offer him mixed wine and myrrh. But it says in verse 23 that he doesn't take it. This is one of the very few charitable parts of this whole process that the Romans had built in. They probably had an underhanded reason for giving this narcotic of sorts to, their, to these criminals. They wanted them to be able to, to endure it in some sense, to, to stay lucid and not die quickly. And so it was kindness in a sense to whoever would be crucified, but it was also a benefit to them because it made it last longer, a little bit of a longer spectacle. But Jesus wouldn't have it. He didn't take it. He's he's willing to undergo the full measure of suffering that would be handed to him. He'll not drink part of the cup that the Father has given to him. He'll drink it all. He'll drink it all so that we don't have to drink any of it, in some sense at least. Verse 24, it says, And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Which, by the way, is another law actually written into Roman, uh, the, the Romans' books. It actually says whoever is a part of the execution, whatever soldiers are there, that they're able to take the, the possessions, the personal possessions of the criminal, divide them amongst themselves. They're the ones that are doing the work, and whatever's left in the guy's pockets and the clothes that he has on his back, they're welcome to take. It's interesting how that lines straight up what we read outside of Scripture, lines right up with Scripture. It's exactly what took place, not just in, in Roman books, but also in prophecy. They didn't want to tear Jesus' clothes up because it was a nice weave so they decided to 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 take cast lots to see this was prophesied of in the old testament in the psalms normally after having been stripped having your clothes just stripped off of you and separated out between the 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 soldiers there the criminal would be scourged as we read last week and looked again at this morning i said that he would be softened up and in a sense it is softening up but it's much more than just softening up softening up them But it would do much more than that. As I said, it would leave them almost lifeless on the brink of death. But They would take that criminal and they would stretch their arms out on that horizontal beam and they would tie them to that beam and order them to carry, force them to carry their portion of the cross to the execution. And it's debated as to how they would be lifted up, but Many scholars believe that that cross piece that they're attached to by ropes, they would be, they'd be uh, nailed to that and then hoisted up by ropes and human power, lifting them up and anchoring that horizontal piece to the vertical piece, that stick, sticking straight up out of the earth. It would form a cross, the cross that we love, the cross that we celebrate, cross that reminds us of the suffering and sorrow that our Savior endured. And finally, they would take a block of wood, they would fix it about halfway up, bending the knees a slight bit, and then anchoring both feet to the cross with another nail. 
And by the way, all of the things that we read in this account of Jesus' crucifixion, they all entirely line up with what we see in history extra-biblically. And not just extra-biblically in books, but also in excavation. Also in the 20th century, we, we, uh, archaeologists had found a, a man who had been crucified by the Romans, having both of his ankles pierced with a nail, and they weren't able to, in this person, this criminal's burial, they weren't able to detach that, those ankles from that uh, nail and that block of wood, and so they buried it all together. We were able to see that. It's interesting how this all lines up. Attesting to the fact that Jesus truly was enduring what the scriptures say he was. Not that we need any extra. It's interesting for us to to see and read that. In verse 25 it says, And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, as we looked at last week, the king of the Jews. When you see it was the sixth hour, I can see many of you trying to do math in your head. And so let me help you out. According to this standard, the day kind of started at 6, right? And so that would be the the first hour. And so if he's crucified in the third hour, that would be 6 plus 3, which means he's crucified at 9. That's probably when they began to lead him out to be crucified. And that whole process of crucifixion actually began. Here at 9 o'clock, Good Friday morning, The religious elite, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they'd finally received what they had been longing for this entire time. The king of the Jews would die. It was quite a scene. Jesus writhing, not just beaten, but torn, nailed to a cross. Mocked by all. If that's not enough, if that's not enough shame, look what it says in verse 27. In this area of association, he was crucified between two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him Not knowing Jesus, many of them, assuming that he was a criminal like the one on his left and the one on his right, they wagged their heads and they said, Aha, many of them, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. And so also the chief priest with the scribes mocking him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. This morning, I want to give you four things not needed on that first Good Friday morning. You ever tried to be helpful? You ever thought something was needed, and when you tried to deliver it, it just proved that it wasn't helpful? We've probably all been there. Remember the first first time that Sarah and I became parents, trying to be helpful to her in that moment, and she looked at me and she said, you are annoying. You need to sit down. I was trying to be helpful. I thought the services that I was offering with the the cold rag and brushing of the hair and the holding of the hand was all helpful, but apparently it was not. Well, this morning you might think of some things that are helpful. 
You might think of some things that are needful, and you might look in the scripture, and you might say, hey, there's some things that others thought were needful and helpful, but they turned out they weren't. I want to show you four things from this text that some people thought were needful, but in fact, they were not. The first one is this. In response to them wagging their heads, wagging their tongues at Jesus, saying, save yourself. You saved others. Save yourself. First thing that I would say was not needed is that Jesus didn't need saving. Jesus didn't need saving. Yes, they they called out for him to save himself, but he would not, and he did not. He didn't want to be saved. Some people could say, some people probably would say with me this morning that Jesus understood the assignment, and they didn't. They thought the appropriate thing for Jesus to do in that moment was to deliver himself from impending death and doom. But he didn't. They didn't understand. But he did. And as the flames, as it were, engulfed him, he's not responding in ignorance. This is fine. He's enduring the cross, not forgetting that he needs to be saved, but recognizing that we need to be saved. And so while Jesus is not in need of being saved, we, in fact, are. Jesus had come into this world. He had come into existence in a physical sense. Why? He had come to save his people. And that would require that he stay on the cross. When? How long? For just a little bit of time, dipping his big toe in the pain and agony and suffering? No, for the entire time. He wouldn't drink the myrrh mixed with wine, and he wouldn't deliver himself from the cross. He had come to save his church. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus speaking of himself says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek and to save the lost. They called for Jesus to remove himself. Save yourself. And he said, no. I've come to seek and to save the lost. I'm not lost. I know where I am. I'm in the right place. I want you to think about this this morning. Do you realize what Jesus realized? That he didn't need saving, but you do. Do you truly comprehend that this morning? That you need saving. That's really the real point of this first one, that Jesus didn't need saving, but you do. And that's why he's there. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, it says this, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. How many in this room are righteous on their own account? No, not one. But I'm a pretty good person. You don't understand. You don't seek after God on your own, at least. Each and every one of us, it says in verse 12, have turned aside. Together we have become worthless. As it relates to righteousness, no one does good. Not even one. What about junior? Not even one. We need saving. This is what Jesus had come to accomplish. There's a vile doctrine with many children. And what that main doctrine wants us to believe is that every human being is deep down really, really good. 
and that something has caused them to be appear broken. Something has corrupted them. Maybe it was society, culture. Maybe it was need or want. Something has caused them to, to turn from good paths to dark paths. The scriptures say, call that what it is, a lie. Before God, there is none who are righteous. None can stand in his presence because each of us have, has, have sinned. His holy judgment is upon each of us, and each of us, therefore, need to be saved. For not to experience the wrath of God under his holy judgment, we will need to be saved. And that is why Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, had come. He had come to preach the good news. And what was the good news? Turn to me. And in that turning, what will take place? He says, I'll take your sins, the sins that attract the wrath of the Father, and I'll give you my righteousness, the righteousness that pleases the Father. Jesus didn't need to be saved. Why would he come down from the cross? No, he, had, he was there. Why? To save his people from their sins. Verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross, the chief priest says, one to the other, that we may see and believe. Here's the second thing that's not needed on Good Friday. This is a bit of a stretch, but I want you to see it. It's there. The second thing not needed on Good Friday is they didn't need proof. And for two reasons. The, the first one I'll give you is they didn't need proof. Why? Because their comments were insincere. They didn't really want to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They didn't want to believe he was the Christ. They're mocking him as they say this. There, there's not even a little part of them that believes, believes Jesus could be the Messiah. They're making them in jest. And so that's one reason why they didn't actually need proof. But another reason, and I think it's more important for us to see this morning, is that proof is not actually what they needed. Why? Because it couldn't, they, there's no amount of logic. There's no amount of evidence. There's no amount of apologetics that will truly change somebody's heart from rebellion against him to submission to him. There is zero amount of evidence that will change you. You might say, well, I don't think that's true. Well, I would counter that by saying, have you ever done something that you knew was wrong, but you did it anyway? Each of us would say that's true, which goes back to our point from Romans. We're all sinners, chapter 3, verse 10, through that we knew about God. We didn't even care about him. We transferred that or trans, uh, uh, traded that for a lie. Is that not what's taking place here? They said, hey, we just need some proof, Jesus. They didn't need proof. They needed rebirth. Luke chapter 16, verses 27 to 31. I won't read the whole passage, but here we have a man who has suffered his entire life and another man who had fared sumptuously, as the King James puts it, every day of his life. But they both die, and, and one, in a sense, goes uh, to eternal damnation, and the other to, in a sense, heaven, or what's called Abraham's bosom in this story. And the one that's in suffering calls out to Father Abraham, and he says, Father Abraham, send someone to my brothers. I'm here suffering, and I know there's no hope for me, but there is hope for my brothers. Send them some proof 
Send them an apologetic missionary. If they could just see and hear somebody back from the dead, let me go back. Maybe I'll go. It's not about me. It's about them, right? What's the response? Father Abraham says to them in verse 31 of Luke 16, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What's he saying? They don't need proof. They need to be reborn. They don't need proof. They need their ears to be unstopped. They need their eyes to not be blinded. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, we're jumping around. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He doesn't encourage Nicodemus who in a sense is seeking the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say to him, hey, I just found out there's some really cool apologetic studies that, uh, that this new seminary has got going on. You can, you, know, you can audit the class. It'll be great. We'll get a lot of information. And maybe that'll help you. No. He, in, he tells Nicodemus, in order for you to enter the kingdom of heaven, and enter, in order for you to receive the righteousness of God or to be counted righteous before God, you're going to need to be born again. It's an interesting picture that Jesus paints for Nicodemus and really for us this morning. No one chooses to be born again. Anybody here choose to be born? Choose the time and place, parents? Some of you say, well, I, if, I would, if I would have been able to choose, I wouldn't have chosen any of the things that, I, that, uh, that are the details that make up my birth. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. But we know this. All of us were passive in our births. And so Jesus chooses this metaphor, not foolishly, foolishly not, not understanding the implications of this word picture that he's giving to us, but fully understanding them, saying, you must be born again. Something must happen to you, against you, with you, not you as an active agent, but as a passive one. And so he's not telling Nicodemus to search for proof, nor is he telling Nicodemus to rebirth himself. Okay, man, just kind of, you know, just kind of reinvent yourself. That's not what he's saying. He's simply pointing out that he has to be born again, and who will do that? The Spirit of God. And so know this this morning. Proof is helpful. Apologetics is useful in the church, but all the proof in the world cannot convert a single soul. All the proof in the world cannot convert a single soul. Do you really believe that? I could prove if I were able to show you video, untampered video evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that wouldn't make you sin less. It wouldn't make you love Jesus more. It wouldn't make you desire holiness any to a greater degree than you already do. Apologetics is great. Video evidence is wonderful, but it's not enough to answer. It's not enough to address the, your lost spiritual state. The scriptures say you are dead in your sins. Each of us, apart from Christ. And you might think, well, Pastor Josh, this is a little discouraging because I, I really feel like I just need a little bit more evidence. If that's you this morning, you're saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I, I, I see something happening in my life, and I see something happening in the Word of God, and I just, I've got some doubts, and I've got some questions. I want you to know that those things are real. They're valid. But you'll always have them. There's not enough apologetics to really change your heart that loves sin and hates God and turn it the other way around. There's not enough answers to questions or doubts that will cause your heart of stone to be exchanged for a heart of flesh. It's a work that only the Spirit of God can do. 
And so we don't ask for proof. We pray that the Spirit would come and change us. Are we to forget about apologetics as a church? Are we to abstain from sharing our faith because, hey, we can't do anything. Pastor Josh said we can't change, we can't affect change in someone's life. That's true. We're not to abandon apologetics or abandon evangelism, no, because the scriptures teach us that we're to do these things. At the end of the day, and through it all, our foundation for uh, executing these things is obedience and trust that the Spirit of God will use these tools given to us by God himself to affect change, to change hearts. Apart from the Spirit of God, they're powerless, though. And so he didn't need saving, Jesus. He didn't need saving. And, and they didn't need proof. As they're watching Jesus die on the cross. Well, let's keep reading. We'll find some other things not needed on Good Friday. Verse 34 says, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. What does he say? Essentially, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, be, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled up a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see if Elijah will actually come down to take him, or come, uh, come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. This is Mark's only record of Jesus speaking on, on the cross. This is one of seven statements that Jesus actually makes, and we put these statements together by, by, the, by all four Gospels, but here Mark only records this one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I love one commentator's thoughts on this scripture, on this particular phrase or statement that Jesus makes. He says this, This was more than the cry of a righteous sufferer affirming his faith that God would cause him to triumph. Nor did Jesus merely feel, feel abandoned. Instead, Jesus' cry combined two things. One, abandonment by God the Father in a judicial, not a relational sense, and a genuine affirmation of Jesus' relationship to God. Bearing the curse of sin and God's judgment on sin, he experienced the unfathomable, unfathomable horror of separation from God who cannot look on sin. And this answers Jesus' question, why? Dying for sinners, he experienced separation from God. And so in a judicial sense, not in a personal, physical sense, but in a judicial sense, Jesus was forsaken by the Father who cannot look on sin. But I want you to notice something, that Jesus is still trusting in the Father as he calls out to him. But he doesn't call him Father in this instance. There's many reasons that could be offered. I'll offer two. One, because here Jesus is literally quoting the Psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the Psalms. And so that's one reason why. That's not the best reason why. There's a better reason that Jesus refers to God not as Abba, not as Father, as we always see Jesus doing in the Gospel of Mark, but instead he, he calls him God. What's beautiful is that Jesus, he's not bitterly rejecting the Father, but in a sense he's appealing to the Father as his God too. Why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus died forsaken by God so that his people could claim God as their God and their Father and not be forsaken. 
Many today, they claim what Jesus was trying to accomplish, and some would even say did accomplish in this moment of history, was that he gave us an example. Some would say, many would say actually, that what Jesus was accomplishing right now as he was writhing in pain and giving up his spirit there on the cross, that he was just showing us how to suffer well and how to die at the hand of our enemies. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Now, while Jesus is an incredible example for us, that's not what he's accomplishing right here in this moment. He's accomplishing something far greater than giving us an example. As a matter of fact, if Jesus is only becoming our example, then he's a terrible example. Why? Because he's showing us how to become forsaken by the Father. And so this whole text doesn't make sense if he's only showing us how to be an example. And so what's not needed, the third thing? The third thing not needed on Good Friday is a good example. The third thing not needed on Good Friday is an example. What do you mean by that? Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever thought of somebody that is struggling to breathe? And this is a serious and yet at the same time it's an ironic and a bit humorous illustration. But think of somebody who's not breathing. Unconscious. They're not processing oxygen with their body. Think of what does that person actually need. Do they need you to like get down next to them and kind of like give them a good example of what it means to take a good breath? Is that what they need in that moment? Do they need you to kind of just kind of... Do they need better illustrations? Do they need you to get like a graphic design artist to show some like step one and then like draw this cartoon or illustration? No, that's not what they need. The last thing that somebody who is not breathing needs is better illustrations or an example. What they need in that moment is chest compressions. They need somebody to rescue them, not to show them how to be rescued or how to live a better life. This is connected with the fact that we need saving. We don't need, Jesus doesn't need saving, we need saving. We don't need an example in this moment. We need rescue. We need chest compressions. And so Jesus is not demonstrating for us how to suffer well or how to, you know, just be a humble servant, although that's partially what's being accomplished. The greater thing that's being accomplished is something for his church, and that is redemption. He's accomplishing redemption for us. So we don't need an example. We need redemption. I've shared this before, but one of the ways the church has thought of and the scriptures teach us to think about what's happening on the cross is like a, it's a really fancy phrase or term, and it's penal substitutionary atonement, PSA, penal substitutionary atonement. That's what's taking place here. It's not Jesus our example. It's Jesus paying the price as our substitute and by it atoning for his church. Let's talk about penal. First, Jesus paid the penalty for the sins of his people. When you think of penal, think of penalty. God gave our penalty to Jesus. He paid our punishment. That's what's happening here. Jesus is paying our punishment. When you think of the second word in that phrase, substitutionary, it's Jesus standing in our place as our substitute. Father, 
punish me in their place. Give me your wrath that would accord with their sin and give my righteousness to them. He's our substitute. Trading places. Much better than Disney. Penal, substitutionary, finally atonement. What's taking place here? Jesus is pouring out his life as an offering for sin. He's atoning for sin. He's, in a sense, covering it as if it didn't exist, cleansing it. And while there is enmity between God and the church, when the blood of Christ covers it, now we are at peace with the Father. And so in his substitutionary death, death, Jesus fully satisfied the demands of God of God's wrath that was against the church. He reconciled the church to God and he gave us eternal life. Orthodox Christianity has always taught that the atoning death of Jesus was absolutely necessary. And it's not an example. We don't need examples. We need redemption. As we kind of think about this idea, it's worth really parking here I want you to think about the idea, this idea that's given to me by R.C. Sproul. Now, he didn't hand it to me personally, but I did read in a book. Basically the same thing, right? He said this, We tend to see him, God, as a celestial grandfather or a cosmic bellhop who is on duty 24 hours a day to supply all of our needs and wants. And we allow the love of God to swallow up his justice, his righteousness, and his holiness. And we think, that, that we think not only that God will forgive all of our sins without an atonement, but that he must do so if he really is good and loving. But that is our propensity. We exchange the God of heaven and earth for an idol. We fashion for ourselves a God who requires no satisfaction, who requires no payment for sin. Nothing, again, nothing could be further from the truth. You cannot sacrifice the justice and holiness of God in order to hold his love and kindness. He gladly does both. He is love, and yes, he is justice. And so Jesus is our example, but we need more than an example. We need more than illustrations. We need to be redeemed. We need atonement. And this is what Jesus successfully purchased for us that first Good Friday. Let's keep going, though. Quickly. And the, it says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who was facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There in the temple, there was this large, thick veil, was, by the way, this large, thick veil that separated the sanctuary of God from really the rest of the earth. And only once a year could the holy priest enter in and offer a spotless lamb on that altar that was in God's sanctuary. No one else could enter but the priest. No one. And he could only enter if he had the lamb. No one else could be granted access. And so here's what's interesting. When Jesus, who is our great high priest, shed his blood, he, in a sense, entered the holy sanctuary of God with his own blood. And in that moment, he satisfied the righteous demands of our holy God on behalf of all who would place their faith in Jesus and enter into the church universal. 
And so because of that, why else does he need to have the veil? So the veil is torn, by the way, it's so beautiful, from the top to the bottom, signifying one thing. It's something that only God could do. And the initiation was from God. And so there's no need for the curtain any longer, torn from the top to the bottom. No need for the, the curtain, and I'll actually word it this way, he didn't need access. Before this time, before the, the veil is torn in two, we needed access. We needed representation. Jesus needed nothing of the sort. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Who is this referencing? The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. This is Jesus himself. He is with God and he is God. When? When? In the beginning. When was was the beginning of God? Well, there is no beginning. But as far as we can understand, when you would say this is the beginning, yeah, at that point in time, Jesus was there with God the Father. What does it say in John chapter 3? Just a few chapters later. Jesus himself speaking says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's saying no one has ever gone into heaven. No one, in a sense, has entered into the holy place truly except he who has come down from the holy place. Except he who has come down from heaven. And who is that person? The Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself. And so do you see this? That Jesus didn't need access. He doesn't storm into the holy place saying, we're going to tear this place apart. I want to be in here. You're not going to hold anything back from me. No, he had already left that place. This is where he's been from the beginning of all eternity in the very presence of the Father. But now, having taken on flesh, he, our great high priest, takes the blood of the spotless lamb, the eternal spotless lamb, and he makes offering there on the altar. And he says, I didn't need access. I had it. But you, church, now have access. Jesus didn't need it, but we sure do. I'm so thankful this morning that he has given us access to the Father. There's an interesting idea, something that Mark, or activity, something that Mark doesn't record for us. And actually, having just read Mark's account, it's actually really interesting and quite beautiful. You see, Mark tells us that as Jesus is dying on the cross, that not only is he being marked by, or mocked by all of these people that are gathered around him, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and all of his enemies and the people who gave false testimonies and, and those who were bribed to, to really just kind of rail against Jesus there in that crowd, but he's also being reviled by the two men on, his, either, on either side, his right and his left. Mark clearly tells us that they also are blaspheming Jesus. They're also wrestling with him and mocking him. They're dying themselves, and they have the audacity and even the energy to belittle Jesus. 
If you think about it, those two men, one on either side, they needed saving. Jesus did not need saving. They needed saving. In that moment, they needed to be saved. In that moment, they needed rebirth. They didn't need proof. They needed rebirth. They needed atonement. They didn't need Jesus to give them an example. Hey, this is how you die. uh, You know, this is how you die in the midst of suffering. That's not what they needed. They needed atonement. And Jesus didn't need access to the Father, but they sure did. None of their prayers to the Father being heard. But what's really beautiful is Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 43, and it says this. One of the criminals who were hanged, railed against him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself, and while you're at it, save us. But the other rebuked him. Something changed. They both were rebuking, or they were both were railing against Jesus. But something changed. And Luke tells us that he asks the other. One asks the other, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And how does Jesus respond? And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. What we see here in Luke 23 is a man who reviled Jesus has now been gloriously saved. He hated Jesus, and his heart was hard, but his heart was no match for the stone-crushing power of the Holy Spirit of God who revealed the true identity of Jesus to this man. He didn't take an apologetics course. He didn't read a book The Spirit of God awakened him to the true identity of Jesus, much like when Peter says of Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This very same activity is taking place both in Peter's life and in this man. Both these thieves were guilty. Both were reviling Jesus, but one was gloriously saved. I want you to remember this idea. Jesus was forsaken so that the thief on the cross could be redeemed. Jesus was forsaken so that the thief on the cross could be redeemed. But what about you? What about you? Is he working in your heart today? Is he changing the way that you see Jesus? It's my prayer. Honestly, it's my prayer. And I hope that anybody else here, that you'd be praying as well, that the, the, the truth would be that we would ask the Spirit of God to break the stone hearts of those of our neighbors, our loved ones, and those who are even attending with us. He would break it and that he would give them a new heart. A heart that sees Jesus just as he is, the one who was forsaken so that we could be redeemed.